essential truths in our Bedrock Beliefs series. In January, we looked at the doctrine of the Word of God. What is the Word of God? What does the Word of God say about itself? And then in February last month, we, we looked at the doctrine of God, uh, who Himself is the, the primary focus of His Word. He is the ultimate subject of His Word and should be the ultimate focus of our lives as He is in creation. We read Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We'll get more into that soon. But we're moving now into the third part, you could call it, of this series. And that is the the doctrine of creation, of the creation and the fall of mankind. And there's, again, there's no way that um, I could or, or that I would intend to focus on every aspect of creation. And so I want us to especially focus on humanity in a special way. Um, And I'm not going to get too much into uh, the subject of what it means to be humanity, what it means to be made in God's image. I may touch on it very uh, lightly or in passing, but a dear brother of mine um, has graciously offered to, to serve us um, to be our preacher, a guest preacher next week. He's been um, fellowshipping with us um, for a little while now and came out to the men's breakfast. Some of you got to meet him. His name is Shamar Harding. You'll, you can see him afterwards if you want to raise your hand briefly, brother. Um, he's going you know, to be here, so welcome him and encourage him. He's going to be covering that topic for us next week, made in God's image. And I'll actually be away this week, so I'm hoping my flight will return on time on Sunday. But you know how that goes. Um, I hope to be with you all in fellowship, but I know that it'll be a blessing um, to have him serving us in this way. Uh, I hope by now you, you trust and have come to understand that anyone that I happily share the preaching with uh, is someone that I take seriously, that I believe is faithful in their walk with the Lord. And I've seen that over at least a decade now um, in his life. And he's been a, a brother to me, an encouragement to me. Loves God, loves his word, loves his family and his community. And he serves all of them in that order. So looking forward to that. And so this, this month in particular, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of creation and fall. And so I wanted to focus primarily on Genesis chapter 1 today. Um, and if you'll again turn or tap with me to Genesis 1, I just want to read through this passage of scripture for us before I say anything else. And before I do that, let me let me just give a word of praise to God. I was informed that uh, while there's not there's there's no other um, overall changes. I was told by the best source to hear it from that our brother Covey, who has basically been um, asleep, um, his all his vital organs are working and everything. But for the first time since January 18th, he opened his eyes yesterday. So I think that's something to praise God for. And let's, let's continue to, to keep him in prayer, as we'll be reminded of today. Our God is, is a great God who can do 
all things to His glory and for our good. Let us read now this foundational passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry land or dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move on the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, 
and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity that we have to come together as your children. To come together as those who are looking to you by faith in your one and only Son, who know you not just as creator and maker, but as redeemer and as father. It is only because of your Son and his perfect life and death and resurrection that we can truly call you Father. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, and not just in creating in the beginning what you did and making everything and upholding it, but also in making a new people for yourself and in promising that you will, at the appointed time, again in Christ, you will make all things new. And so we, we wait for that day. Help us, Lord, in the midst of whatever we might be going through today and in the midst of the craziness of this past week and the foolishness of mankind that we see so often displayed in our own lives and in others and in the societies that we live in. Help us to be salt and light in this world. Help us to bear good witness for Christ and help us to stay faithful to the commission that he gave to his whole church of not just being witnesses, but proclaiming his name to the ends of the earth by the power of the Spirit. And so, Lord, everything that we hear now from your word and that we look at in your word at this time, I pray that that would be the end of what is, is done that you would be honored and glorified and that we would be built up and strengthened in the faith. We ask these things in your Son's most holy and precious name. Amen. As you'll notice on the screens behind me, I've entitled this sermon, The Earth is the Lord's. And I have a few points that I want us to think about. Um, from this passage and a number of other passages today. 
The first one is, I want us to look at the author of creation. Secondly, I want us to consider the order of creation. And thirdly, coming back to God again. I want us to see the Lord of creation and the Lord of recreation. The Lord of creation and recreation. So let's think about this first point together. The author of creation. Look at verse 1 of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Perhaps more than ever at this time, I would say that we are living in a time when especially as Christians, we need to read and reread and study this particular book of Genesis. When people are confused about how to understand pretty much every area of creation, especially humanity and gender and so forth, we have issues like abortion and people who are enacting laws that would put us on the same playing field of equality as even a blade of grass at times. We need to read even just this first chapter of Genesis over and over again. But notice in verse 1 of, of this book of Genesis, which essentially means beginnings. Uh, the, the, the idea behind the word in English of Genesis is just beginnings. It's a, it's a book of beginnings. And in fact, if you... If you wanted to divide and, and consider the whole book of Genesis, which is foundational to the rest of the Bible. In fact, the way you, you view the first half, which is chapters 1 through 11, which focuses on God and His creation of the world and His relationship with the world at large. Chapters 12 through 50 goes a little bit more into depth on His creation of a covenant family starting with a man that we know as Abraham. But if you, if you think of the whole book of Genesis and all the themes in there, I want you to notice again what God introduces before anything else. In the beginning, God. God. And I mentioned last week when we were considering the fact that God, in all of His attributes, is triune. The Father is truly and fully God in all those attributes that we were looking at last month. The Son equally and the Spirit are three distinct persons of the one true being that we refer to as God because He has revealed Himself in that way. But that that word God, Elohim, is not a singular type of noun which describes a person, place, or thing. Hopefully I'm not messing that up, but it's what I remember at least. A little bit I remember from school. But that is a plural kind of noun, Elohim. And so even in the first introduction of God here, we see this reality. But notice after it says, in the beginning, 
God, referring to the author of creation, that it says, God created the heavens and the earth. The author of creation introduces himself first of all. And this word to describe creation or or, or creating this act of creating comes from a Hebrew word, bara, which speaks of creating something out of nothing. The, The sort of theological term to describe this is ex nihilo. In other words, there wasn't God and then somehow some other atom or something else that God found to put together what we know as creation, what we know as the heavens and the earth. But remember, God himself is the only one who is uncreated. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is the eternal one. And when it says God created, what it's referring to is both his authorship, his ownership, and it it begins to touch on what it was he was doing. He was creating everything out of nothing. And in thinking again about the, the author of creation, before I move into the, the second point too quickly, we're told more clearly in the New Testament some details about how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were involved in this. In fact, again, you see it there on the beginning of this chapter in, in verse 1. And the Spirit of God, verse 2, was hovering over the waters. There's a reason why pretty much any English translation you read, the translators have put that S for the Spirit in capitals because it's representing a person, the third person of the Trinity. It's the same reason why you should ask a question when you see verses 26 and 27. But verse 26 says, let us make man. Let us, plural. But then we're reminded that it was the image of God, singular in verse 27. The one true God, the, the one who is eternal and infinite and uncreated. It was in his image that we were made. But there's at least two people, two persons rather, involved in verse 26 when it says, let us make man in our likeness and image. So we, as Christians, to be faithful to the word, we we go to the New Testament where we are shown the person and work of Christ in passages like John 1. If you turn to John 1, you, you see these words. In the beginning was, you notice the similarity there. Genesis 1 begins like that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1 begins the same. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this Word is Christ. We're told in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. And John says, We have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But look at verse 3 in John 1. Through Him, Jesus Christ, all things were made 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So we see that the, the divine author of all things is this triune God, and that he is the very source of all creation, that he, he is the one who gives it not just its prior existence, its, its first coming into being, but who upholds all things, we're told in Hebrews 1, by the power of his word. And if you read passages like Colossians 1.16, you see that similar language is used of Christ, and it says that all things were made by him and for him. So God, in, in all of these ways, is the author of creation. I want us to look at the order of creation. And again, there's no way I could... Well, maybe I could, but you'd have to bring your tents. But there's no way I could go through each of these days in a way that would, in a sense, do real justice to each of them. But let's think a little bit about the, the order. And you could say the order and the orderliness of creation. Let's continue again in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Some translations say void and use different language. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is just before God says, let there be light. And the idea of, of what happens here when God begins to create all things from nothing is that before we even get into what is referred to as the first day, God actually creates. Don't miss this. God creates the materials. You know when you're building a, you know, constructing a house or something, you, you need to go to A.L. Thompson's and we have to order our, um, or whichever place you like to go, we have to order our materials. We pre-order. Then we go, then we figure out how to put things together, especially if we're men, instead of reading the manual. And then we put together and construct something. But this language in verses 1 and 2, before the days themselves begin, is speaking about God creating the pre-ordered materials of creation, the atoms, the molecules. But the language here of formless and empty or, or void some people have described it as chaos. And I, the reason I don't suggest using that is because that can refer to something that is morally problematic. But some people will describe this as God creating the, 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 the pre-ordered materials. And then in those six days that follow, he's ordering them. But that's really what's taking place. When you go from verses 2 to verse 3 into the first day, let there be light. And so God creates all the materials that we get to study after thousands of years. And some of us feel so wise. And we praise people. You know, um, his name just slipped out of my head, but the one who created the light. You know, he figures out how 
how, how things fit together and how to turn on light, how to, how to basically capture certain elements in a way that they create light. But in verse 3, that's not what God is doing. He's taking His own pre-ordered materials and causing some of them to create something that is light. He's ordering creation. See, the word create here doesn't just speak of creating something out of nothing. In His creation of all these materials, these atoms and molecules and you know, if you want to know more about that, you can ask my wife after the service. I'm not a scientist. I do know the one who made true science and everything else. But in this word, barach, create, it's talking about in the instance that he brought things into being, their purpose their use, their correct use was being determined in their very existence in a way that does not change no matter what age we are living in. And so we see that God gradually creates all the world and the universe and the galaxies and everything beyond what human minds can even fathom in six literal 24-hour Days. Now you say, hold on. Hold on, Pastor. You just said you're not a scientist. I went to school. And I read a lot of books. And it tells me that there's no way that that could have been six 24-hour literal days. Well, let's think about that. Again, when we, when we see the word day in Scripture, it comes from the Hebrew word yom. And so I'll just pick on one way that this word is used. And I'm sure you've heard this. It's a day called Yom Kippur. It's it's an Israelite day of atonement. And this only comes around on one day of the year. You see a show of hands, anyone who's heard of that? Yom Kippur? Yeah? Okay. Can you imagine the utter confusion if from the first day that that was enacted up to now, they had to figure out what space of time, what time frame to sacrifice those creatures on the Day of Atonement. I'll just tell you simply, they didn't have to figure it out. You know why? Because it came around every year in the space of one 24-hour period, which we know as the Day the Day of Atonement. So every time we read one of these six days, it is the word Yom. But not only that, we think about the order of creation. You see these words, and there was evening, and there was morning. Now I could ask a child to tell me, how do you describe one evening and one morning? And the child would be able to tell me, that's a day. Not only that, but each of the days is marked with a number. And the reason I'm pointing this out, and maybe it doesn't stand out as much when you hear it coming from my mouth here, but Hebrew literature was very poetic. 
And so when they wrote these things down, first of all, it would be much shorter than what we read in the English. But there was a symmetry and a type of uh, poetic nature in which these things being read were to teach the people, first of all, how God created the world, but then how they were to live their life. In other words, the entire lifetime of a faithful Jew was determined by things like days and weeks and months and years. In fact, God says to us here, we're told in verses 14 and onwards that God was going to create greater lights and lesser lights. And He made them so that Verse 14 says, let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. But more than that, we as Christians and Bible-believing people have to interpret Scripture through the lens of Scripture itself. And I want you to think about this. The idea of things like macroevolution and that this universe is millions and billions of years old. Out of thousands of years of our existence as the church, and over 5,000 something years, the existence of the nation of Israel, receiving this written revelation from God, it's only been in the last couple of hundred years that any professing Christian has ever tried to blend those ideas of evolution and billions of years of existence in this world together with Genesis 1. And do you know where they got that from? The origin of that was nowhere in the Bible. It was from philosophy. I would say philosophical science. Observable science looks through a microscope at things that you can touch and monitor and observe. Anyone who steps beyond that too far especially backwards to the beginning of time, I deem that as more philosophical science than anything else. What we're talking about when we read and discuss these things from the pages of Genesis 1 and 2, I would say Genesis 1 through 11, really, we're talking about historical science. And you know how many people were present when all of the world was created? None. One. And if we are going to be true Christians in our thoughts, in our expressions of God and of truth, we must have a childlike faith. We may not be able to understand how ideas that come to us fit somehow or if they fit with the truth of God's Word, but we need to come to God's Word and say, I believe that this is your Word. I receive what it says and if you're going to interpret Genesis 1, you've got to do it through the lens of Scripture. Exodus 20, chapter 11, says it this way. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's in connection with a seventh day. And by the way, I didn't read that. Look at the first few verses there of chapter 2, on page number 2. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth 
were completed in all their vast array. That means in everything that makes up what creation is, that had been done. There's nothing new. It's Solomon who says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We typically, myself included, we typically refer to that as um, sinfulness or, or human thoughts or ideas. But it's referring actually, as well as that, it's referring to creation. There's nothing new that has come into being since this point. So in six days, but, but look at verse 2 of chapter 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, and listen carefully to how he, he words this, on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What did he rest from? He rested from bringing into existence all the materials and then ordering all of them in the way that they exist. Plants according to their kinds. Creatures according to their kinds. And last of all, the human race made in his likeness according to our own kinds. We are not animals. We rule over them. In fact, in Genesis 2, you see a little bit what that looks like. I won't say too much more than that. But he rested from creating. But in Hebrews 1, we're told the sun is upholding or governing all of these elements. Every breath, it's as if God is taking his own hands in love and putting that into our lungs. In and out. He's upholding all things by his powerful word. And Jesus himself, when he was being challenged by the Pharisees, I think it's in John 5, once again being challenged because he did something good on the Sabbath. Know what he says? He says, my father and I, in other words, he's, he's classing himself with the father. He says, we have been working since the beginning. In other words, even when God is said to have taken rest, he was still working on that particular day. But he rested from the work of creating. And he has continued to everlastingly will continue to uphold all that is in existence by his own power and will, his wisdom, his grace, and so forth. So we must interpret the order of creation, the purpose of creation, according to God's own word. So when the Israelites rested on the seventh day, there was no confusion about which day of the week they were supposed to rest. Within the old covenant framework, they were to rest on what we know as Saturday. And there was no confusion about which day it was, the fact that was it a 24-hour period or not, no, they knew. How did they know? Because beyond the nation of Israel, God has defined time itself by the way He created. By six 24 hours of creating and then entering into a period of rest, upholding and, and consistently keeping this creation in its existence, God gave us the week. What is the origin of this week? It is here. It is here in Genesis 1. 
And what is the pinnacle of all this creation? Again, I'm going to try not to say too much about that. I'll leave it to my brother. But the pinnacle of God's creation is you, my friend. Can you imagine that? All of this creation, which is too much to take in, and we live in a fallen creation that is no longer defined as very good. You must be delusional if you think otherwise. But with all of the fall that has taken place, is it not amazing to take in God's handiwork and to to, to praise Him for what He has done, even in creation? But think about this. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, I'm not going to run too far. There's a lot of false teachers today who are taking what I just said and run into East End and saying a bunch of other foolishness with it. Just remember, we were taken from dirt. We were taken from dirt and made something amazing, the image of God. And notice when he comes to the end of his work of creating what he says in verse 31 of Genesis. Genesis 1.31 God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Very good. Which brings me to our last point. If you ever wonder how you should think about yourself. Just just remember this. The uncreated God who made all of this creation that even in a lifetime we couldn't fully take in and, and be moved by and be blessed by enjoying. He made you in His image. Isn't that an amazing thought? Nothing else Nothing else. Remember, God in His handiwork, in His creating, He's separate. That's part of what the word holy means. He is set apart from what He makes. He is untouched by the dependency and the the finite nature of creation, even as He interacts with it. We don't believe as Christians in pantheism. God is not somehow connected to creation. That is blasphemy. Be careful. There's a lot of teachers today also that call themselves Christian who are teaching these kinds of ideas. We should, we should subdue and rule over the earth and steward the earth, but understand that God made us in His image to be rulers of this world for His glory and for our good. And He says after He... You could say, in terms of created things, he, he leaves the best to the last and makes man and woman in his own image. He says it's very good. Which brings me to the last point. Having thought a little bit about this God, this Lord of creation, and the orderliness and the perfection, because when he says very good in verse 31, he doesn't primarily mean moral he's not he's not primarily speaking about uh, the moral aspect of creation because think about it this way if he was speaking about morality 
that would not apply to creation. Creation does not have morality. That only applies to mankind. So when he says at the end here of verse 31, or in the middle, it was very good. He's referring to a type of wholeness, a completeness, a sufficiency that exists, or or I should say, existed within the realm of creation. And if you're thinking about that, it's even sometimes hard to hold on to this for a second because we look around and we say, very good? Really? Very good? I can look north, south, east, or west. I don't see very good. I don't see very good on the news. I, 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 I appreciate the beauty of his creation, but very good? No. Words like broken, fallen, crumbling, disastrous, catastrophic, sad. All of these things honestly do describe our existence in this current world as well. So how did we move from this to where we are today? We'll get more into that in detail when we think about the fall in a few Sundays. But simply put, the only answer you can find is in this same book, two chapters later in Genesis chapter 3. Mankind no longer listened to the Word of God and trusted it as being true and and good and right, but, but took upon themselves in listening to the deceiver, the liar, father of lies listening to Satan we took upon ourselves a decision to not trust God's word to not take him at his word and to attempt to hold up this ability by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we thought that we had the power and the ability to manage this knowledge But there's only one who can understand the total depths of evil without being sucked into it. And that's not me or you. That's God. We became what the Bible calls dead in our sins. We became sinners. Adam was the father of the human race. In fact, the word Adam means just that it means man or basically it's almost like saying mankind Eve means living or life giving so one of the root root word you could say of our daughter's name full of life and none of you have to wonder if that's the case (laughs) but all of the human race came from these two people Adam and Eve and please before, in a context where it's not a conversation going on right now, let me restate this. There were no other people that God made. Adam and Eve gave birth to sons and daughters and other sons and daughters we didn't hear about, we're not told about. We don't have the human rights to know about, to use a term that's thrown around today. And some of those sons and daughters created the rest of the human race. But the, the head of humanity was Adam. So when he fell, 
we all fell in him. It's a thing called the doctrine of original sin, which we'll think about more soon. And here's the deal. You cannot take the nature of something and cause it to do something other than its nature. If you came to me and say, uh, said, James, I would like one of your mangoes, because mango season's coming up. I want to, you know, in three or four, well, hopefully, three or four years, be able to pick my own mangoes from this kind of mango um, or, or some other fruit. You know, you're going to get what seed you put in the ground. And yes, I know I'm going to hear about it afterwards, so I'll clear it up. I know you won't get the exact same mango, but you won't get an orange from a mango seed. That's for sure. That's not how God created this world. In the same way, you don't have the capacity, we don't have the capacity to not be sinners. David says in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And he's not judging his mother's relationship. He's saying from the very conception of a male or a female human, all human beings are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. It is our nature. And that's why it's good news, church, that the the Lord of creation is also the Lord of re creation only he can make us new if you want to see a, there's a couple of passages but I'll just close with this one 2nd Corinthians if you turn with me in your Bibles to 2nd Corinthians and chapter 4 the Apostle Paul there is talking about the ministry of the, the new covenant the, the ministry of the spirit through people like himself in the new covenant. He's about to defend himself against false apostles. See, they've been around for a long time. That's all we have today, by the way. The 12 apostles that existed were the only true apostles in that sense. But to those who were trying to challenge his ministry, he's teaching a little bit about the, the nature of new covenant ministry. And he's trying to use language to describe what it's like for someone to come into this covenant relationship with the living God, how it happens. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, first he starts with the negative in verse 4. The God, lowercase g, he's referring to Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that's all of us by birth, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see, cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what's, what does he say is the answer? How do we deal with this problem? He continues in verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Preach Christ. And look at what happens. Verse 6. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, or let there be light, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. How, how do we go from blind, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually dead sinners who don't see Jesus Christ as anything more by nature. We don't see him as anything more than maybe a good guy. Maybe the best guy who ever lived. Maybe someone to follow as a great example. But definitely not the only means of my salvation. The only way to God as my eternal Father. How do we move from seeing Christ wrongly like that to becoming what we call a believer, a Christian? Paul said it is basically as powerful as when God said, let there be light. He shines the light. See there again? Made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Christ Himself tells us in many ways throughout His life and at the end of Revelation in this vision that He gets, that John gets from Jesus, He says, I am making all things new. I will come back and wipe away every tear and there will be no more death, no more tears, no more mourning, no more sickness, no more COVID, no more cancer, no more suffering. It will be very good once again in the most ultimate sense. This is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That He sent Him to live a life of sinless perfection. Completely obedient in every second of His life. As one of us. To the Father's will. To the Father's law. And having lived for 33 something years. In sinlessness goes to Calvary's cross with a working knowledge of what is about to happen to him, which would crush any of us. Even just to see the future would do that. He goes to Calvary, and like, like Jacob, like, like, like that time when Abraham was going to offer up Isaac, rather, he willingly places his life in the hands of the Father, and the Father places him on this altar, this sacrifice, you could say, was, was placed on the altar of the cross. But unlike Abraham, the Father drives the knife of His judgment into His Son. It wasn't the thorns in His head. It wasn't the rejection of mankind. It wasn't the, the suffering and the agony that we caused Him physically or even emotionally. It was the wrath of God. It was the the essence of what defines hell that Christ bore on the cross for whosoever believes in Him that paid the penalty for our sin. And three days later, rising again in victory, showing that His sacrifice was accepted and that yes, it had been finished, paid in full, He then ascended later to the Father's right hand. And having completed this work, his people and all their sins have been atoned for 
But God makes us into His people. He, he shines His light by the Holy Spirit who takes Christ. Notice what Paul says again. We preach Christ. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 2, he said, I didn't come with eloquent words. I didn't come with PhDs. I didn't come with associations with any other entity or with my own wisdom or, or so-called power. But he says, I came and preached Christ to you and Him crucified so that His wisdom and power and glory are magnified. When we think about creation, if you're listening to me at this time and you're, you're thinking about all this, it, you see, it's not enough to see God as the Creator. You must come to know Him as your Redeemer through the Lord Jesus Christ who was crushed for our iniquity and will come back at the end of time which only God knows when to make all things new. And that is the guarantee that we have in Christ. This is why Paul after teaching 11 chapters of, of wide and deep truths of this gospel in Romans chapter 11, he closes with these words, which I'll close with, from Romans 11:36. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your your wisdom that you as the, the divine architect ordered all things after creating everything that we now know we thank you that you not only created through your son but you continue to uphold all of your creation but more than that we thank you that you are making all things new one person at a time oh god we need ourselves to continue to be made new we we need so many people around us to be made new to be born again to be born from on high by the power of your spirit would you take the truth of your gospel today for anyone who's listening that has not yet trusted in Christ would you shine that glorious light into their souls that they would see Christ that they would turn their eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face so that all other things will just fade away in His glory and grace. And would you remind us and strengthen us and equip us with the truth that as your people, every single one of us is called to, to be light in this world of darkness. And we have everything we need right now in your holy word. And by the, the person and the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, would you use us to be a people 
who shine this gospel light across the fence, across the aisle, across the island and across the world. We pray, Lord, for these criminals who are committing these heinous acts of crime to be spoken to with the truth, to see whose children they are by nature, but to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that they can be your child through faith in Him and be made new and be set free from the bondage of sin. Help us, Lord, as a church to be faithful to, to what You have called the church to do. Help the government to be faithful to what You have created the government to do. And help us to work together regardless of what may change around us or may not change to recognize that as the church we are your people we are already in this new creation reality and to never let that diminish praise in our life forgive us for our lack of commitment to you in so many ways forgive us for our fear of man our laziness spiritually to proclaim your gospel and to to call people to repent according to your gospel, to trust in Christ and help us to be more faithful as the days continue until we see Him face to face, until our faith becomes sight in the new heavens and earth. We praise you for who you are and for what you have done. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up at this time and join me <clears throat> and if you're able would you please stand with us for the closing hymn from the trinity hymnal which is hymn number 111 this is my father's world <clears throat>